This is Going Negative, a podcast about solving climate change through carbon dioxide removal. Welcome to Going Negative. I'm Tom Green, and today I'm joined by Sean Meehan from Charm Industrial. Sean's uh, one of the co-founders there. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. It's great to talk. So, uh, Sean, let's uh, let's dive right in. So, um, you co-founded Charm Industrial, which is a, a carbon removal company. Um, but how? I'm curious what your journey was. How did you How did you end up there? What was your journey into the into the world of climate change? My path to the climate space was fairly haphazard. Um, I worked for a few years at the South Pole um, with one of the, uh, um, I was working with the National Science Foundation down there, but I was sort of co-located with the NOAA Baseline Observatory. So I could actually see some of the, um, uh, the collection vessels that are used there for tracking the CO2 levels globally. I think there's seven of those baseline observatories around the world. And so I have like a little vial of CO2 from the South Pole, which was captured at that baseline location. And then um, after that, I went and worked for a company called Wait, Planet. Wait, before you carry oh, on, let me just pause you there. You sure. worked for multiple years at the South Pole. That, yeah. That's a pretty unusual background. Let's just, let's just dive into that a little bit further. What, sure. what were you doing there? Um, I initially went down to shovel snow. That was my uh, more or less my role. I was working as a sort of a general assistant for the um, National Science Foundation's, uh, their Office of the Polar Programs. Um, and so the United States Antarctic Program operates uh, a couple uh, permanent locations in Antarctica. There's one uh, McMurdo on the, co- on the coast uh, sort of near New Zealand. There's one on the coast near Chile, which is um, the Palmer Station. And then there's South Pole, which is one of the, the deep field camps, they call it. And there's a ton of field camps that operate um, sort of for a couple years or only during some seasonal um, periods. And then South Pole is operated uh, year-round in the summer, which is from November to February. There's about 250 people there. And then in the winter, there's 40 or uh, 60, depending on the season. So I went down there in the summer. I was only supposed to be there for three months to sort of shovel snow. (laughs) I was working with, uh, uh, I was an assistant for the um, Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. And so I was sort of helping to prep the uh, deployment strings for the the Ice Cube Neutrino Telescope. Um, And so what they would do is drill this two-mile-deep ice bore using hot water and then deploy these basketball sized digital optical modules. And then those would detect uh, neutrinos that would impact uh, the nucleus of water molecules like deep in the, um, in the ice. So two miles underneath the station, the ice is as clear as glass. And uh, when one of these neutrino events occur, then you can actually see the, um, I think it's the Shrenkov radiation um, that occurs due to that, which is the same reason why uh, reactors glow blue. And so this is, yeah, all right, we're we're a couple tangents deep here. So, um, uh, <laughs> so, so, so you were just there for the summers, or yeah? Well, I was supposed to be, and then um, I ended up getting a job wintering over running the radio and satellite systems. Um, so I went from sort of like the lowest grunt on stations to one of the more technical roles, and so. 
uh, I stayed on for another uh, nine months uh, beyond my uh, three month contract that I had planned on or four month contract. And then I came back to Colorado. I worked in um, wait, wait, wait. a I'm laser not, lab. I'm not, I'm not done with Untalk Picker yet. Hold yeah, on. yeah. Oh, no, I'm just <laughs> gonna, I came just back for like a year so, and then I went back again. So. <laughs> oh, then you went back. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I did two so, winter rovers down there. So what's it like? I mean, not many people have spent a winter down in Antarctica. What, what was that experience like? It's amazing. Uh, it's really funny. They, they uh, have like a – to winter over the South Pole, you have to go through a pretty strenuous psychological evaluation. Um, which is like a 600 written questions and a two hour interview with a psychiatrist. And um, basically it'd be like, are you, are you going to be cool with this? <laughs> Cause the last plane <laughs> leaves in February and the first one doesn't come back until November. Wow. And so for those nine months, there's uh, sort of no contact with the outside world, except for uh, very limited internet access for a few hours a day. Um, actually, which was my winner mostly bounced off an old uh, control channel on a weather satellite. So one of the old uh, GOES weather satellites was used for our um, sort of station internet. But, wow. And then yeah. what was it like psychologically? I mean, how was that experience? Oh, it's amazing. There's one sunrise and one sunset a year. Mm -hmm. uh, since you're actually on the, um, on the axis, you can see the sun just circling on the horizon. It's very surreal. So it's like noon is um, sort of what we call grid north because uh, there is no real um, north down or every direction is north. But um, yeah. so we call uh, Greenwich Mean Time uh, north. And then uh, so noon is basically the sun is that way. And then midnight, the sun is um, the other way. So uh, but what's really cool is you get this two month sunset where the sun is just like slowly going down on the horizon. Um, and so you can, you know, every, anytime you go out during like the two weeks where it's actually on the horizon, it's like you kind of get bored of sunset, which is a funny idea. You just <laughs> see the sun like sitting on the horizon and it's not going anywhere. Um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, it's an amazing crew. You're, you're down there with um, my first winner. I think there were 60 of us. And uh, my second winner, there were 47. And it's just an amazing group of scientists and um, there's a lot of like uh, tradespeople down there as well who are working on you know keeping the station up and running and it's just a it's a great group yeah travelers at the end of the world wow it sounds incredible and did you did were there, were there hard things about it what would you say was the most challenging aspect um, I think the <laughs> well I mean we could we could touch on the the climate impact of it which is that the station is run off of diesel fuel that's flown in. Mm -hmm. So there are some questions about the environmental impact of running a station at the South Pole like that. But I think the, uh, the idea of um, just being totally cut off, I think my first winter, um, I had only intended to be out of the United States for three months or four months. And so I actually ran out of uh, like pants um, mm -hmm. just because you can't get, there's no mail you can get or anything like that. So I ended up like, uh, sewing a pair out of uh, marker flags, which I thought was a really fun, like, you have these little, like, green and black marker flags that we use to uh, sort of map trails in the winter. Um, but I think it's just, uh, I don't know, you're never bored down there. So I think it was uh, always just a challenge of, I don't know, I don't really know what the biggest challenge was down there. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, 
I think like one of my favorite examples of like how strange this place is, is normally if you're in an argument with friends um, over something, over, over drinks or anything like that, where you could just like pull up that information uh, that doesn't exist down there, um, you know, short of like the library. But if there's anything like how does a peanut grow is one of the famous ones that like my winter, there was a lot of contention over. <laughs> And so you just end up getting in these like really intense conversations, like trying to figure this out. And like someone is claiming that it's one thing and someone else is claiming it's another. And you just are left to this like sort of Socratic discussion to come to a solution on the problem where, and then a few hours later, like the internet will come up for a little bit and someone will look it up and you just hear people screaming down the hallway, like I told you, <laughs> but even though they were like convinced otherwise. So I don't know. I think, uh, when I went, I didn't have a lot of um, a lot of like other things in my life. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't married. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have any kids, so it was like a much easier way to sort of like duck out of life for a year. And I think like that is something that, um, given that freedom, it was it was super easy. But um, the challenge is, it is like a year where you're just gone from the world, effectively. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, yeah, the challenge is just not having access to, to things like information or, or even hardware that you would otherwise like be able to just tinker on. So. Right. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds me of, of what it was like 30 years ago when if you, you know, got into a, got into a debate with someone about something, you couldn't just pull out your smartphone yeah. and with access to all of the world's information and all of the world's misinformation and, and just look it up. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, fascinating. Um, great. Well, th thanks for that little. Thanks for that little digression. Um, sure. But uh, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let, I'll let you continue with the story of how, of how you ended up working in uh, working in the climate space. Yeah. So I ended up um, uh, meeting someone uh, working on the Bicep Telescope who um, ended up working for a small startup called Planet Labs, which was working on building uh, small satellites, or it was Cosmogia at the time, but. Uh, the goal of this company was to image the whole earth every day. And it sounded like an interesting project. So I ended up, um, he suggested that I go out and interview with that group. And so then got a job there. I moved from uh, Colorado out to uh, San Francisco and I worked there for about four years. And then uh, after that, I ended up working at a small rocket startup, which was a very strange experience and worked there for a year and built out a little team and then um, ended up, uh, my friend Kevin was, a friend of mine from Planet was playing with this idea of starting a, uh, a carbon capture company in some way, shape or form. And uh, our other friend Peter was getting involved in that as well. And so uh, me and my partner Kelly decided to leave the rocket company and then start um, charm with those guys and so then i ended up working in climate change <laughs> so it's just sort of like bouncing between things that i found interesting yeah absolutely well you know as tempted as i am to go into another digression about the rocket startup uh, I'll, I'll i'll ask you i'll ask you about charm so um you know carbon the carbon capture company so mm -hmm. t tell us more what, what do you guys do how does it work so the initial idea behind charm which is uh I thought it was amazing. Um, and this is before it was a company was this idea that uh, you could build some sort of like temple to climate change. And so uh, 
when you hear about like a ton of carbon, it's very difficult to wrap your head around what that actually means. And so uh, what Kevin wanted to do was build a uh, blocks of, or want to use a uh, gasification process to, or uh, a pyrolyzer to take biomass and turn it into char and then use um, that char to form bricks of one ton of carbon and then build a sort of temple out of these bricks that people could go and interface with and actually see like, oh, okay, this is what a flight across the country looks like. This is what an international round trip flight looks like. And sort of to see those physical manifestations of this sort of intangible impact that people have. Um, and so that was kind of where charm came from was it this idea of a char farm. And so you were going to grow uh, material on a farm and turn it into char and then, uh, you know, build this, sort of experience with that. And uh, then our friend Peter got involved and he sort of said, well, you know, if you actually look at this a little bit differently and instead of trying to just sequester carbon um, and instead sell hydrogen using this process, you could actually, you know, make a, a possible business case for this. And so that's when Charm as a company started was we were looking into uh, biomass to hydrogen. And so that was sort of the, the origins of Charm. And since then, um, we've sort of evolved our process a few times. And so now what we're looking at doing is actually uh, producing a bio oil. And um, this is some of the uh, news that we've published recently. But the idea of taking this biomass, converting it into a bio oil, which is effectively just densifying the biomass, and you end up with this effectively crude oil and then what we were doing from there is we're uh, designing a process that converts that bio oil into hydrogen to sell um, carbon negative hydrogen. And then uh, we're also going to be producing um, or we're going to be uh, taking the bio oil and sequestering it in uh, injection wells. And so that is sort of like the reverse oil drilling operation that we're doing to uh, um, help close the carbon cycle that started 180 years ago when the oil was brought out of the ground. So our goal is to reduce global CO2 levels. And so we're doing that through both the production of uh, hydrogen gas, which currently um, is about 2% uh, of global CO2 emissions. Uh, and so if we can use green hydrogen for that through our process, then we can sort of take a dent out of that. And then the injection of the bio oil is our uh, straight sequestration efforts. Got it. And you know, I've, I've got so many questions, um, but yeah, yeah, maybe go. Just, Sorry, maybe, I'm rambling. No, here. no, that's perfect. And, and maybe just to pick up on the hydrogen thread. So, sure. you know, hydrogen is, you said, 2% of, of current current emissions. I mean, is there also the opportunity for uh, for certain for certain use cases to switch more to hydrogen from um, from more traditional you know, oil based fossil fuels? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's an interesting one coming into San Francisco in the next, uh, um, I think, year or two is the hydrogen ferry that's coming online, um, which is exciting just from a, you know, to get people exposed to the fact that this is a is a useful fuel. Um, I think the currently the production of hydrogen is through the steam methane reformation process. So you're burning natural gas to heat natural gas to crack it down to form hydrogen. So it's just this extremely carbon intensive process to get to, you know, what is ostensibly a, a clean fuel. Um, and so one of the major applications for this is in um, 
in forklifts actually currently. Um, hydrogen forklifts inside of factories are a, a major um, consumer of hydrogen. And then also the hydrogen uh, fueling stations for cars like the Toyota Mirai are coming online and um, are expanding uh, almost exponentially through California at least. So uh, we see a market for hydrogen as well, uh, an expanding market, but the current pathway that got us to where we are now is looking at the uh, carbon impact of the current hydrogen market. Right, right, makes sense. Um, and uh, and so go, going back a little bit to this process, so you know, you, say you start with 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 biomass. So can you talk a little bit about more that? What it, what what is the biomass that you guys are starting with? Uh, we're starting with uh, waste agricultural uh, biomass. So um, we did experiment a little bit with um, some purpose-grown biomass, but I think for our initial targets, we we see that you know you can avoid a lot of the the issues around land use and um, the, the volume of agricultural waste is just astonishing, um, especially if you live in California, like driving up the, the five, you can see these mountains of almond shells on the side, uh, which is one of our, our first um, materials that we were working with. And so the machine that we designed would take in almond shells and then produce a, um, a syngas and then that syngas we were forming to hydrogen initially. But then uh, what we've done since then is sort of split that process. So we just take the, the biomass converted into a bio oil through fast pyrolysis uh, reactions. And then from there, we take that bio oil and through a separate gasification reactor, we're producing hydrogen. And so that's the sort of the back half of that is more what we're working on a lot of the sort of technology development on in-house. So we have a pilot plant that we call our junior pilot plant in the backyard where we're building up the uh, hydrogen side of that project. Right. And, and you know, you mentioned the almond shells as an example, and I'm sure that, you know, you can use different types of biomass. How, mm -hmm. how um, specific is, how specific is this? Do you need a different machine for different kinds of biomass or can you just kind of shove everything in there and it, and it, uh, and it begins the process? Yeah. Um, material feeding is a nightmare. Like that is the, that is the, the crux of, of most projects relying on biomass is the front end handling and the, the preparation and drying stages. And a lot of times based on those challenges, you'll have an entirely different machine for each, um, material and so you try to make your machine as agnostic to your input biomass as possible but depending on what you're trying to produce on the back end if you're trying to make a uh, you know a, a feedstock for uh, some sort of bioreactor you're trying to build something that is producing more sugars or anything like that out of your um, reaction it can be very sensitive to what the input um, biomass properties are and since we're going all the way to hydrogen or either going all the way to hydrogen or stopping at um, bio oil, we don't act, we're not as sensitive to those requirements as other processes would be saying going into like a Fisher Tropes reaction. Got it. Got it. Okay. Fantastic. So then um, let, let's talk a little bit about just some of the, some of the numbers here. So, uh, so what, what, what stage are you at? It, it sounds like you've already got your, you know, your, you call it your junior plant, I think is what you said. Um, mm -hmm. you, so that is that, is that plant already up and running? Yeah. So we are on like sort of the third generation of our pilot plant process. So 
Um, two years ago, uh, we built our first, um, our first pyrolyzer demo, and that was a small twin screw auger. Um, it took in a uh, sort of like a wheat straw type material and produced a syngas out of that. And then we moved on to our junior pilot plant last year, which is a, um, I think it was a three ton per day uh, machine. Uh, and so that would, that was a single screw auger uh, pyrolyzer that would then go into a gas cleanup train, but still uh, stopping before going all the way to hydrogen. And that was mostly uh, due to the limitation of the fact that the pressure swing absorbers and the um, sort of gas cleanup stages to get you to, a, you know, a 5.9 hydrogen is extremely expensive and the compression stages are extremely expensive. However, they're all off the shelf. They're off a very high shelf, but they're off the shelf. And, and just so, and just just uh, to make sure everyone's on the everyone's tracking, it's five nine hydrogen. Can you just explain that concept? Oh yeah, it's nine nine point well nine nine point nine 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 hydrogen. And so the idea is that that is sort of on the order of the purity of hydrogen you need to um, to go into a fuel cell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the hydrogen. Uh, car markets which were some of our early on-ramp uh, targets, um, you need just a very high purity hydrogen. Um, and then, yeah, and the other cost associated with that, the major cost is your compression. Um, taking anything from like atmosphere to 10,000 PSI just takes a, an enormous amount of energy. And so if we, did, if we were just compressing it then to vent it because of the volumes we're producing, it wouldn't be um, economical to try to transport or anything like that. So... That's why we stopped right at um, at the syngas. Right, right. And so then, you meant oh, you, uh, sorry, go on. Oh yeah, and then I was just gonna say we uh, have now are in commissioning of our third prototype, uh, which is the bio oil to hydrogen process, and so we're commissioning that machine right now. Got it. Okay, great. And so you mentioned sort of three done three tons a day um, at the junior pilot plant. So, so how much how much um, CO two have you have you captured so far? Oh, we are we are a carbon positive company at the moment, uh, which is it's just like it, there's a little bit of a tinge I, I bring up all the time in our um, our sort of uh, founders meetings that we need to make sure we have a um, a retainer um, in the event that charm collapses that we're able to offset the uh, you know energy we've expended trying to solve this problem just in case everything goes wrong. But uh, yeah, currently the, the machine is heated through, um, normally uh, a pyrolyzer, what you do is there's some startup energy associated with it, which is usually provided through natural gas or electric heating. Um, but the thing is, since we're only running, you know, four to six hour tests on our machine, that um, we're spending all of that energy in the heat up stages. And so uh, we are currently not sequestering any carbon, but hopefully um, by the end of the year, we'll have at least 400 tons sequestered because that was our uh, Stripe contract. Right, right. So at least on a net basis, you haven't sequestered any carbon yet because you have to also emit carbon dioxide in the process, the, the embodied emissions of, of what you do. Um, yeah, yeah. But w- w- just, to, just to give us a sense of scale, what, what, about, what about on a gross basis? How many, how many tons have you captured, putting aside for a second the, the emissions in the process? Oh, we're still, we're still in research phase. So we actually haven't um, sequestered any carbon yet. Got it. 
Got it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you mentioned the Stripe contract. So um, uh, congratulations on on that. Um, uh, so Stripe has uh, has purchased, I think you said, 400 tons of negative emissions from Charm. Um, Correct. So, um, what what's been the impact of that? Was is that that is that a, a big win for you guys? Uh, that was that was almost a. Uh, it was a, definitely an accelerating event. So, Charm had the intention of selling hydrogen. That's our our sort of plan for go to market. Effectively, was to um, since we're a venture capital funded company, we're like, okay, what we're going to do is like produce this machine that sells hydrogen. And, and then we said like, okay, once that's up and running, we're going to sequester the CO2 off of our, our process. And so the sequestration plan for charm was to, um, after producing the hydrogen, you end up with the machine producing streams of CO2 and hydrogen and some other trace gases. And so we were planning on doing a classic, um, class six injection well with the output of that machine. Mm -hmm. And so that's just straight up uh, pressurized CO2 capture. Um, we, a few months ago, started um, playing with the idea of actually going to this intermediary bio oil product. And that is what kicked off this idea of like, actually, this could be a um, highly effective carbon capture project because this bio oil is extremely dense. It is extremely carbon dense as well. And there's no energy associated with compression and the storage is, um, is mass limited as well. So you get into these scaling economies of transporting this bio oil, which is effectively an extremely dense biomass. And so we saw that opportunity and that aligned really well with what uh, Stripe's objectives were, which is sort of finding these technologies that are on the cutting edge of what's possible out there. And so um, our team kind of kicked off a research project, which culminated in the Stripe contract. And so now we are um, sort of putting the last uh, bits and pieces together for that project. And then hopefully in the next few months, we'll be able to uh, start the sequestration. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's, it's very elegant, right? Taking, uh, taking, uh, taking biomass, turning it into oil and putting the oil back in the earth. That, that, yeah. There's a certain circularity for, to that, but it certainly feels very attractive. Love it. Yeah. The, there's definitely this feeling of like working with the machine, producing the bio oil. You just, there is, it's an black, tarry, oily substance. I mean, it, you, would be uh, we had a leak on the system within our our flare a few uh, months back, and it was just a uh, basically pressurized syngas was uh, leaking within the flare manifold against the sidewall, and it looked as if someone had taken forty weight motor oil and just sprayed it on the inside where the the leak had occurred, and it's when you look at it, you're hard pressed to to see the differences between this material and and oil itself, and so there's like a initial gut feeling of just like horror at this material. But the, the amazing thing to consider is like, okay, well, all of the like carbon and sludge in this material was extracted from the atmosphere within the last growing season. And so it's kind of a, it's also very exciting to see this, this uh, material that has effectively been extracted from the atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. 
So um, let, let's cast our minds forward a little bit. So I'd love to, love to understand, uh, you know, what's your vision for Charm? So, you know, if everything goes, if everything goes well, uh, what's Charm going to look like in 10 years? Oh, if everything goes well, uh, Charm is going to be operating uh, facilities all around the United States, which are um, collecting agricultural biomass and uh, creating bio oil. And then around those facilities, we'll be operating our hydrogen production facilities. And then co-located with our bio oil production facilities will be our uh, injection wells. And so it's hopefully we'll start to look like an oil boom, but just a little bit backwards. Backwards oil boom. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, and, and, you know, if, if, you, if you get to that point, um, what, what kind of scale can we, can we expect? How much, of a, how much of a dent will you be putting in this overall problem? Oh, I think um, we, I mean, I don't know. You know, it's, it's very exciting to, to say just a huge part of the solution here, but I mean, we were, we were looking at single digit impacts into the state of California with our, with our model. So it's, um, I mean, we are hoping that it can scale to, to the gigaton, um, but we are, um, you know, we'll, we'll start with a, a few, a few uh, thousand tons this year is the, is the goal. But I think that there, there's no reason it can't scale. I mean, the, the idea is that all of the, or the vast majority of the carbon in the atmosphere is coming from the burning of these, these fossil fuels short, the, you know, the permafrost um, disasters that are occurring. Mm -hmm. But um, when you look at the impact of just oil alone, um, this, all these oil uh, reserves came out of these uh, deep underground formations, which are receptive to the movement of this oil as well. So there is no reason why we can't actually take this oil and inject it into the same formations to at least the volume that they've been extracted, if not more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's great to hear that um, even though you've got some, even though you've got some caution around it, it's great to hear that, you know, gig gigaton scale uh, is, is at least, is at least a possibility for this process. Yeah. There's definitely lots of hard problems to solve between here and there, but we are we are trying to trying to get to them as fast as we can. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Well, um, fantastic, and th thank you for um, thank you for doing this important work because uh, you know I think as as many people in the climate space believe, you know, we need to be making uh, we need to be making a portfolio of bets uh, on a whole bunch of different processes uh, that that show promise and and that show the possibility of of capturing CO2 from the atmosphere at a gigaton scale. And this is, this is clearly one of those possibilities. So um, yeah, so it's great. It's great. It's great to learn more about it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to ask, you know, we are, uh, it was really exciting to be a part of the Stripe project with, you know, so many amazing organizations, you know, yours included working towards these, these sort of moonshot projects. So I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm definitely hopeful, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And speaking of moonshots, uh, something, um, some, something that might bring us back all the way, all the way to the beginning was, um, I would I be correct in assuming that with your experience uh, in Antarctica and the psychological testing you went through, uh, you'd be a great candidate for one of the one of uh, to be one of the Mars colonists when uh, <laughs> Elon Musk gets us on that train. Oh my goodness! I think I, I, 
probably going to have to pass. I think uh, the line from uh, Jurassic Park was, um, God help us, we're in the hands of engineers. <laughs> I think <laughs> so. <laughs> I think uh, I have uh, enough fun with my, my Earth-based uh, uh, terraforming projects. Yeah, well, maybe, um, maybe Charm can just provide the hydrogen for the rockets instead. Yeah, exactly. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Sean, uh, Sean Meehan uh, from Charm, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful, wonderful talking to you. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, Tom. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Going Negative, a podcast about solving climate change through carbon dioxide removal. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. We hope you'll join us next time. Until then, take care.